HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show is sponsored by Bob's Red Mill. With natural foods, they support organic, vegan, paleo, and gluten-free lifestyles. Learn more about their commitment to good food for all at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this weekly romp through culinary history. And you know, we are now in the age of foodies, or food-obsessed, food-aware, whatever. Some of us don't like the word term foodies. But indeed, eating for us is now more than mere sustenance. It's an experience to savor, tastes to explore, and discoveries of new temples of food art. But how did we arrive at this point? And who came before us? My guest today, Dr. David Shields, has followed the lives and careers of the chefs, caterers, and restaurateurs who raised the profession of cooking and fine dining in America to an art form. His new book, The Culinarians, Lives and Careers from the First Age of American Fine Dining, published by University of Chicago Press, tells the story, the stories of 175 of the masters who brought gastronomy to the cities in the United States. David is the Carolina Distinguished Professor at the University of South Carolina and the chairman of the Carolina Carolina Gold Rice Foundation. His scholarship explores three fields in general, early American literary culture, American performing arts photography, and food studies. His previous book, Southern Provisions, A Creation and Revival of a Cuisine, uh, chronicles the emergence of the in the 1800s of a distinctive set of foodways along the southeastern coast of the United States. Shields has published extensively in the fields of early American cultural history and the history of photography. He's the sole author or editor of 11, make that 12 now, (laughs) and counting books, and, and 
he edited the scholarly journal Early American Literature for a decade. In 2016, he won the Southern Foodways Alliance's Keeper of the Flame Award. Welcome, David. It's a pleasure to have you. Linda, it's great to be here. And the book, I have to, I have to say, this it's a phenomenal book. I, I didn't know what to expect. And, and I have in my hands the unexpected. It is truly unexpected. How did you come about writing this book? There are names and people in there that no one's really ever heard of. It's strange that uh, our memory of the finest uh, cooking that's been done on this continent uh, has vanished entirely. And uh, we had restaurants beginning in 1793. We had great hotels which served uh, cuisines from uh, France, Germany, England, and uh, later America. America, right. Uh, And um, the memory of Anyone prior to James Beard and Julia Child seems to have vanished into smoke. How true that is. How true that is. Um, well, you had written, I guess in, it was maybe in the introduction, that you were kind of surprised, as you just said, that there is no history of the of the professional cooking in America. Is So is this why you well, yes, ventured uh, forth on this book? Um when I wrote my previous book uh, on Southern Provisions, the my marching orders in that book were to uh, explain the revival of Southern food, how a cuisine that once existed, particularly in the Low Country, uh, and had gotten lost as the ingredients disappeared, um, was brought back, um, and during the process of that research for that revival. Um, you had to look at who made the cuisine, the superlative practitioners of uh, um, the professionals uh, who made the the food of uh, Charleston, Savannah, uh, world famous, um, much as the chefs in New Orleans made their cuisine world famous uh, prior to the Civil War. And uh, I was researching and there was no history of fine dining in America. There was no history of restaurants. There were individual restaurant histories like Delmonico's. Of course, right. Um, but um, who were the chefs? Who were the people doing the finest food? We actually knew more about home cooking in mm-hmm. early America and 19th century America than we did about uh, the professional practice of Cuisine. That's true, and it's and as a, a culinary historian, it's easier to research and to get your hands on information about home cooking than it is, as you mentioned, about you know the professional cooking. Yeah, because cookbooks are the sort of default uh, literature that one looks at, and mm-hmm. there are many early cookbooks that survive, um, but um, cookbooks are designed for home cooks, and uh, they don't contain the refinements of professional practice, at least until the 1880s when uh, Charles Ronhofer uh, decides uh, that uh, he's not going to dumb down the recipes anymore and publishes this monster of a book. Quite literally huge. (laughs) Right, called the Epicurean, uh, which I'm sure... uh, um, many a purchaser must have read with horror when they realized how much labor, uh, close attention, and uh, skill 
was needed in order to create the dishes that appear in a place like uh, uh, Delmonico's. And he was, for listeners who might not be aware, he was the chef at Delmonico's during a, a certain period. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, you, for, for the purpose of this book, you kind of divided up your time period. Now, it's go, it covers 1790, when the, first, the first restaurant, fine dining, certainly there were taverns and boarding houses, but the first fine dining restaurant in 1793. That's right. Um, up through 1919. Right. Okay. Yeah, Which, prohibition uh, sort of destroys the financial basis for the restaurant world. Kind of put a stake in the heart of the fine dining, right? <laughs> it, it did. And, uh, you know, th- there's another story to be written about how hotels had to switch from alcohol to sugar in order to keep um, financially afloat in terms of their dining rooms mm. and how a certain subset of rather heroic individuals like Louis Diot, who is uh, at the end of this book, um, kept the ideal alive until that post-World War II period when Gourmet gets founded and uh, Lucius Beebe appears on the scene and, you know, gastronomy once again becomes a public concern, and the, a second great age of fine dining emerges. So this this you call the first age. And within this first age, you divided it up into four eras. Uh, can you describe for us what those, what those four sections or those four eras well, are? Yes, the beginning period talks about the creation of the institutions that really mattered. Um, the restaurant, or it was originally called a restaurateur, and um, the hotel, and the oyster cellar, which was an urban institution um, where beer and oysters were served below grade. Um, I then talk about the second sort of period where African-American caterers become the most significant event uh, cooks uh, in the major cities of the East Coast, I talk about um, the increasing um, emphasis on professionalization and the beginning of a kind of, um, I don't know, proprietary secrecy mm. about one's fine, finest dishes. Why is it that uh, there is no cookbook published by a professional chef that actually talks about his recipes. Yeah, his until about 1885. Oh. Uh, and uh, it's because uh, that's how you made your money. Uh, you don't give your secrets to, to your rivals. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, then in the post-war era, I'm, I'm interested in the French hegemony, this period when uh, French chefs... Um, spread across the United States um, and dominate the hotel and restaurant trade. And their professionalism uh, is associated with a kind of theatricalism. They like to create food sculptures. And uh, and when you mentioned sugar earlier, that it's all about building these... these, um, Incredible, as you said, incredible sculptures of food, right? Yes, uh, uh, dining becomes a theater, and uh, their dishes have 
remarkable, like submarine world suspended in jelly or something <laughs> like this. And, uh, and the candied flower petal was uh, something oh, yes. that was spread across everything. The final period deals with um, uh, the Gilded Age and also the emergence and consolidation of the various ethnic traditions of fine dining, uh, the German restaurants like Luchau's or Faust's in St. Louis, um, the Chinese restaurants uh, like Bang Ferlo in, uh, in San Francisco or the various uh, ones in New York and Philadelphia and, and Baltimore. And also the Italians, who uh, are um, uh, extraordinarily industrious. I, I talk also about uh, uh, the consolidation of um, Latino cuisine in Los Angeles, Jose San Roman, mm -hmm. uh, the pioneer there, and the beginning of uh, Jewish catering in uh, New York City when I talk about David Cantor and his... Uh, um, um, generation of hosts and caterers well i mean it is it's interesting how i never thought about some of the the people and and the periods that fit into these different categories until i you know you put it in perspective and yet still within those periods yes there are a few names that are you know that pop out at me that that we know ranhofer um uh, thomas downing you know people right. like that throughout history that you know that are, have been written about and known, but then there are so many of these names that totally have well escaped my reading. But um, I'm sure people, some people knew about. But then, 175, and I'm sure you must have dealt with so many more. How? how what was your final filter for who made the cut? Oh right. Well, um, I. Over a number of years, I'd collected all sorts of information from various sources. How many years are we talking about? Did you uh, devote maybe, to this? Uh, maybe 10 years. <laughs> yeah. um, and, um, but originally, I'd, I had included um, sausage makers, um, bakers, um, people that were engaged in the brewing and distilling industries. I wanted to do sort of anyone who made anything that was ingested, sort of. And then I realized that uh, that way lie madness. Uh, and uh, <laughs> so I cut out the bakers and the distillers and brewers. And um, I looked at every city that mattered uh, and sort of attempted to reconsolidate the entire dining scene. And um, so... Um, I have twice as many biographies I wrote as appear in this book about New Orleans chefs. Uh-huh. So we could do a whole book just on New Orleans. Yes, if you, you know, that's right. From your writing and your research. And, and what happens is that you realize that many of these, you know, at a, certain of these people are replicating patterns that uh, a pioneer had put out. You know, you have... Uh, Fritz Huppenbauer create the New Orleans oyster cellar. And then you have, you know, like eight different people who imitate him. Uh, <laughs> even within the year, there are four. 
And uh, should you include those or, or the person who gave the idea? Well, maybe this helps explain something. You said that you, that in doing your research, you ran into a lot of stories that were pretty much totally fabricated or that were lies, and you sort of tossed those out. Would these be people claiming to to be the first to ever do something? Oh, or? well, yes. And, and um, I wrote a book on silent motion picture photography at one time, and the... Um, Publicity uh, departments of the early movie uh, production companies uh, just generated stuff off the top of their head about <laughs> certain of these people. And um, one of the things that I discovered is that um, any French chef who came to America um, claimed to have served in this restaurant or in Baden-Baden or... Uh, worked with Carame uh, or somebody else uh, of great significance, and you couldn't take that at face value mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. Um, they were building up their res. They were y- yes. padding their resume, padding their resume, <laughs> and so um, and then you know there is um, there are certain dishes that get created that at some juncture everyone tries to claim, like the potato chip. The Saratoga chip, which uh, the story is still kind of out on that one, or the verdict's out. I'm not, I'm not really sure about. I know you spent time up in that area, but um, yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, and you know, there are at least nine people I encountered who, in their obituaries, claim to have invented. <laughs> well, <laughs> their celebrators claim okay. that he or she invented the potato chip, right. and and so. Uh, sifting lies is something that every biographer has to do, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, certain um, certain industries are prone to um, I don't know reigning myths or something like that. You know, think about how many restaurants these days claim to be farm to table restaurants right. that are local right. and. Um, it ain't necessarily so. <laughs> they make exception for lemons. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, but and and yet, as we we mentioned, you know, cooking as a vocation and recipes had been around for centuries. But right. what was missing? Yes, uh, there there comes a kind of professional consciousness um, in a class of cooks. It happens in the end of the eighteenth century. It's European before it's American. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's certain things that you can count on um, generally in in terms of a professional cook. One is a mastery of of, uh, pastry cooking, which is uh, a difficult proposition. It's a technical art, and um, uh, you either can do it or you can't. you have to be familiar with more than one ethnic tradition. Uh, uh, this is particularly the case in hotels when you're serving a populace that's made up in the United States of people from very different backgrounds. So if they want uh, Haas and Pfeffer, uh, you know, you better be able to produce uh, Haas and Pfeffer. Uh, and this notion of being able, through your own repertoire, to serve a vast and multicultural um, clientele is one of the hallmarks of a professional consciousness. Most professional cooks expect 
to uh, perform in a particular type of institution, whether it's um, a restaurant or a hotel or a hospital or being a cook for like the president of the United right. States or, yeah. or um, a significant figure. Later on, um, you have an interesting subset of people who are railroad cooks. One, um, the railroads make a particular claim to the quality of their cuisine. Oh, railroad dining was the thing for a while, right? <laughs> yes, that was, right. It really was, you know, that's what you did. So the professionals had those sorts of expectations, and um, they also um, were assured of being able to uh, handle numbers of people. They could, they could uh, cater events up to 1,000 people. And that kind of administrative skill is something which no domestic cook or plain cook was the phrase that was used in advertisements uh, for people who were not professionals. I mean, and that we know from from ancient times. Yes. You know, the banquet cooking is you know rules the rules and orders of banquet cooking, not necessarily what you ate, but you know the the administration of of right. making all that quite or the delegation of it. Um, and and I was uh, it, something that that was my aha moment as I was reading this and well restaurants and how did they what set them apart and you, when you mentioned the big banquets of course I think of the long tables but you mentioned something very interesting that sort of set fine dining restaurants apart from other things and it was the table right I mean we had the the big long refectory tables and I mentioned boarding houses early on. And suddenly, someone's idea to yeah, James Stetson dine at small tables, uh, who was the um, steward at the Astor House in New York City, uh, decided to set up cafe-style dining, and that is, you had a table that would seat four or six or two, rather than everyone being cheek by jowl with uh, a stranger at the long refectory table. Which, and look where we've come. That's right. <laughs> so. Um, but it's interesting that refectories table dining still survives in certain uh, spaces like schools. Mm -hmm. uh, or if anyone's been to a church dinner <laughs> recently, uh, they always line up the uh, tables and long tables and you sit next to um, your co-congregants uh, somewhere along the way. Yeah. yeah, but it's interesting that, you know, that fine dining, you know, was related to that, to the small table, the cafe table, That's right. well, or tables of ten. You could have tables of ten. That was still fine dining, small tables. Um, you talk about um, these culinarians that you have chosen to pick them out as such gastronomes, whatever you want, however you want to describe them. That there were three gifts. All right. What are those? What are the three? Without giving everything away from the, what are the three gifts that you? I can help remind you a little bit, but. <laughs> well, you know, I I'm think sure that, you know. Um, the, the things that are important about gastronomy is one that they make the process of ingestion, which is a natural thing. Um, an object of reflection, so you become conscious of the food. Mm -hmm. And that kind of consciousness, 
one's knowledge that something is good for you, your anticipations of certain pleasures, actually has a way of making um, dining artful. It becomes a part of your life that uh, is not feeding, it's not just uh, brute ingestion. It is a source of, um, of wonder. And that's, that's important. Um, there's also the dimension of these professional chefs offering a place in society where one can engage in sociable pleasure and celebration. You know, churches and synagogues provide a cultural space for worship, meditation, and, um, and religious spiritual reflection. The restaurant and the hotel, under the dominion of these um, exemplary cooks, provided a place where you can share joy and uh, share the finest tasting food and uh, drink with the people whom you love. That's a tall order for any chef. (laughs) It it is, but um, think about the way that, you know, the birthdays, the wedding banquets, the... the celebrations of the publication of a book <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, create uh, just uh, some of the most memorable occasions in your life. Mm-hmm. And um, if the food is superlative and uh, the space is beautiful, uh, it just makes those moments um, that much more wondrous. Now, we're going to come back to these gifts because there's a, a couple no, something else I wanted to mention on that after we take a short break so stay okay. tuned I'm Michael Harlan Turkel host of the food scene and modernist breadcrumbs on Heritage Radio Network I'm here at Bob's Red Mill to find out from Bob himself why his products taste so good so what's the secret Bob to make the best whole grain flour we look back in time No modern technology can match the old-world engineering of a stone mill. Wow. Bob's Red Mill is using stone mills? How old are we talking here? Well, the stone mills are practically as old as mankind, and no matter what civilization they uncover, they find two stones that people were rubbing together to make uh, something they could eat, whole wheat flour, But the stones that we use are quarried near Paris, France, in La Ferte, and it's the same stone material from the same quarry that the uh, Romans used to make stone mills all over the Roman Empire, of which you can testify by looking at at, uh, Pompeii. It's a quartz material. It has a uniqueness about it. It's very hard. It has a certain porosity, and they put the stones together in a unit of 20 pieces and band it so that they use only the best and and sharpest parts. It's an ingenious thing, but very old. I mean, thousands of years old. So it's uh, pretty cool. Those sound like some really special stones. How do they work? Stones turning either the top or the bottom stone. 
turning at 100 to 125 revolutions per minute, produce a lovely 3, 4, up to 500 pounds, depends on the, how, how soft the grain is. The bottom stone is the bedstone, and it's also called the nether stone in the Bible. But it also now turns for some configurations. Would you say that using stone mills lead to healthier grains? I know they do. I can watch it. I showed you. You know it as well as I do. Uh, the grain goes in the top, goes through the stones, and it comes out. We don't lose anything, and we don't add anything. Thanks for sharing the story of how Bob's Red Mill is using ancient technology to keep their products on the cutting edge. Michael, we think that we can make a difference by sticking by the traditional way of stone milling whole grain, and that's what we're doing. You can learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Hi, we're back, and I'm speaking with Dr. David Shields, the author of the new book, The Culinarians, Lives and Careers from the First Age of American Fine Dining. And David, we we were talking about um, the difference between just a cook and and, and a gastronome or, or a culinarian, as you have. Right, a chef, a caterer. Or, 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 or a restaurateur that's right. who directs it all. I mean, um, there are, and I mentioned that there are so many names that um, were surprises to me, so many names that, yeah, I did recognize a few, but some I've never heard of. Um, and I wanted to ask you, um, did you have a favorite or a few favorites? Or not, not favorites, people who just kind of it jumped out at you and you went you kind of gravitated to their story. Yes, uh, there are people who I think are really significant. Um, Jules Arthur Harder uh, in particular, uh, strikes me as uh, somebody that you have to know about. And um, he had an extraordinary French training. He uh, was the chef at Delmonico's, at the Maison Doree, at the Union Club. He even spent a a year down in Savannah um, as a a chef. Uh, And during this time, he becomes the great master in terms of knowledge of the food that's available in America. And he goes out to the West Coast to be the first chef at San Francisco's Palace Hotel. And he takes his knowledge of vegetables and demands that the growers in California produce these vegetables. He even secures seed for them. And... um, the entire world of uh, Californian vegetable uh, production um, is, you know, in, in large part responsible to him. But uh, he's given a gift to us as well in that he intended to write a comprehensive six-volume uh, set of cookbooks covering all aspects of cuisine. He only published one, uh, and it was called The Physiology of Taste or Harder's Practical American Cooking. It is the Rosetta Stone Mm. of American vegetable cookery. The great genius of the 19th century uh, in terms of American agriculture was the production of an enormous variety of new breeds of vegetable, tomato varieties, squash varieties, 
But the old cookbooks, one they cited ingredients, said, cut up a squash. Use a tomato. (laughs) Yeah, that's right, a tomato. Which tomato, which squash, which bean is best suited to which dish? Now, chefs who had haunted the vegetable markets of New York or Philadelphia or Boston knew they had the professional knowledge. And um, they didn't reveal it Mm. until Harder wrote this book. He cites all the vegetable varieties and how they hook up with the various ingredients. I think you can download this, you know, um, as a, an electronic book from Internet Archive. Oh, terrific! That's great. So, I see why it's why it's near why that story was near and dear to your heart. Being involved in the in your work with uh, recovering old, you know, restoring old uh, brand heritage yeah. seeds. Yeah. Uh, we know that the second volume, which was on fish, was finished in manuscript, but has never appeared in print. So, um, if any of you who are uh, detectives or book hunters, um, the lost masterpiece of American cookery mm. is this lost manuscript second volume of Harder's Physiology of Taste. And that's a challenge. So there, it, the challenge goes out to you who are listening. <laughs> that's right. There, you mentioned somebody else who was another story that was um, that kind of jumped out of your favorite you thought that people should definitely know about. Um, a woman... Oh, um, there are many sort of remarkable women culinarians, uh, and I treat 30-some of them. Mm -hmm. Um, But the first one that I treat uh, is Anne Poppleton, and she invents the lunch for America. She's uh, a confectioner and pastry chef who has a shop uh, uh, near the Astor House uh, in New York City, and she becomes the sort of center of the bon ton. Every fashionable young man or young woman went to Ann Poppleton's uh, for... Um, Long before Schraff's came around. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, and um, she uh, had an ice cream maker that uh, was uh, extraordinary. Um, one of the things that... Uh, occurs during the period, the 1820s, that uh, she is uh, um, working in, is that sugar becomes cheap in America. And for Mm -hmm. the first time, you could uh, preserve all of the harvest of uh, your orchards by making preserves or jellies and jams. And so the 1820s becomes the golden age of jams and jellies. And it's Ann Poppleton who, uh, who introduces the flavors of these things to people and biscuits with jelly on them, uh, breads with jelly and butter, uh, jams, uh, quince jam um, um, become the cakes with layers of jams and jellies mm. in them. Uh, is a signature of Poppleton. That, I mean, that is making me hungry just listening <laughs> to that. <laughs> and it'll be lunchtime shortly. Uh, um, that, I mean, there, you know, there's one, You were, we were talking about different specialties. There's somebody I marked that, and I'm going to try to remember why I marked it. Oh, he was up in Saratoga, and right. he was in New York. Saratoga is, um, 
One of the oh, things. Yeah, roasting. Oh. He refused to give in to ovens. That's right. He would only roast all his meats over the open fire. He said that is where you got the flavor of the meats. I love that. <laughs> One of the things we have to think about is the sort of transformation of the technology of mm, cooking that sure. takes place over this period. Um, when Julien, the founder of the first uh, restaurant uh, in America, the Julien's Restaurateur in Boston, begins cooking, he cooks um, hearthside, that is, over using using a fireplace with uh, cast iron utensils, and he has a charcoal brick stove uh, for his soups. The iron cook stove only becomes widespread in the 1830s mm -hmm. with the temperature control that could allow you to make sauces where you have to cook things, emulsions at very yeah. Yeah, low temperatures. And at, in the 1880s, the gas range becomes something that is extraordinary. And Shelcher is a person who has visions of barons of beef turning on spits <laughs> and baronial fireplaces, and that's the way that meat should be roasted. And so in his, you know, the, his hotel in Saratoga, uh, all the people in the dining room would see uh, the open fireplace with a uh, uh, spit jack with uh, a side of beef or uh, a haunch of venison uh, sputtering away over the over the coals. And that certainly has to wet one's appetite. It I mean, does. You know, I'm sure yeah. the odor in that uh, that space must have uh, had the gastric juices percolate. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, somebody else who, um, uh, for better or worse, um, but at, it caught my attention is James Parkinson. Oh, yes. Um, James Parkinson may have cooked the single greatest meal of the American 19th century. He, um, he was taught by his mother, who was an English confectioner, and Parkinson's ice cream parlor in Philadelphia was considered one of the most fashionable places in North America, um, the equal of Ann Poppleton's in many <laughs> ways. And um, Parkinson uh, learned the arts from her and actually assisted in publishing a book, which is about pastry cooking that she wrote. And he, uh, he developed his own skill. And there was a bet made by 15 New York gentlemen with uh, a club from Philadelphia that Delmonico's could produce a better meal than anyone could produce, any chef could produce in Philadelphia. Well, the Philadelphia club goes to Parkinson and says, will you take this challenge? Uh, and um, Parkinson does take the challenge and... Uh, prepares a meal that everyone immediately recognizes is the greatest meal that's probably ever been served in America. Hmm. He had game flown in from uh, Georgia and uh, um, salmon from Maine. Um, so but, it was the ingredients. Yeah, so the, the ingredients, ingredients mattered. And, and that was important because after the Civil War, Parkinson gets into a, a kind of battle with... Uh, um, uh, Grand Duke Alexis of Russia, who toured the United States and claimed that uh, 
all he was getting was second-rate French cuisine in hotels that he was staying in, and where was American cookery? And James Parkinson writes a kind of manifesto about where American cookery lay, and it's with um, uh, a repertoire built out of native meats, game, and, yeah. and vegetables that are grown here. Yeah, that's what struck me, I think, about him, was that kind of the, a question that we're, uh, I'm hearing when I, when I talk to, um, uh, to historians, you know, what is authentic American cooking? And he was the first to, you know, to beg that question. Well, so where, where is the authentic American cooking? And he was presenting it right. with, those, with the authentic American ingredients. Right. Now, yeah, I think there is, you know, in the South, we have a very interesting situation where an African-American um, culinary tradition melds with Native American ingredients and Anglo-American, and there is a distinctive repertoire and set of ways of producing things in a body of dishes that mm -hmm. we now recognize as Southern. And uh, to a certain extent, New England had that too, and yeah. there were people who applied that, uh, talk about Aura Taft, who um, creates the greatest seafood restaurant uh, to have existed in North America, one which offered as many as 60 different varieties of fishes at one time. Hmm. Amazing. Um, it's interesting because I think it was Parkinson, too, who you know built some elaborate or, or, or an original unique pastry or something and of course to vault it to the you know that people would recognize it gave it a French name <laughs> and, and you talk and then so you're one of your sections about the the French uh, hegemony and, and everything if it was going to be elegant if it was going to be worth you know spending money on had to be French that's right, right. yeah well and, uh, and the uh, menus as well everything's written in well French or Right. Or a sort of French. <laughs> yes, and that, I, I mean, Franglish, the, <laughs> the uh, sort of Frenchified versions of various dishes, uh, something which still exists on, in many American restaurants. But uh, in the 1870s and 80s, where, um, when the French actually organized a professional, a set of professional organizations across the United States, uh, they... Um, they quite explicitly, you know, sort of take over the major institutions and they set up employment agencies, um, making sure that uh, the hotel that opens, opens up in Boulder, Colorado has a French, French chef, chef in there. Right. <laughs> and, and escargot are being shipped by Henry Moquin directly to, uh, to Boulder. So mm -hmm. um, it's, it's an interesting world. And I talk about some of the chefs like Jules Weber and Mo Quinn, who uh, service that larger world of French cookery. I think, uh, you know, another group that, you know, has to be recognized for their extraordinary contribution are the African-American caterers who mm -hmm. dominate the world of event cookery in the eastern cities. Mm -hmm. And uh, whether it's Joshua B. Smith in in Boston or Thomas Downing in New York, or and I was I was surprised by the number of women African American women. Yes, Emmeline yeah. Jones, uh, Nellie, Nellie Nellie Murray in uh -huh. New Orleans, and one of the things which has happened is that uh, New Orleans has embraced Nellie Murray and Zella Palmer, the professor at Dillard University, has 
brought about the Nellie Murray feasts that uh, worked to um, memorialize the African-American contribution that, to uh, uh, Creole Louisiana cuisine. Right. Her story is definitely um, a, a very interesting one, as are all the stories in this book. It, this, this is a very... It is, and I'm sure that it will become, since it's fresh off the, the presses. It's a very important book, David. I think you've, you've really, um, you've told a, a story here that will, you know, that I think Americans should um, take note of and, and be proud of it, and it describes our cuisine. Cookery is an art, and yes. nearly every other art has its hall of fame, its histories, and uh, its pantheon of great performers, and... Um, why not um, cuisine? And as we carry on with with our modern chefs, you we were talking about the gifts. What did these these culinarians what it, what separated them from just you know the you know the regular cooks you know right. slinging hash? You said were these gifts that they offered, and one you mentioned that they were in, that the the culinarians were intellectually curious. Yes. Um, um, they they wished to create on uh, new tastes, new flavors, and and I guess that goes along with the being aesthetically um, experimental. Yes, yes uh, right. when you see American commerce and American agriculture offer such a rich panoply of ingredients. Um, and you think about your own technical training, how you have certain skills that enable you to combine and, uh, and concentrate flavor. Um, it's um, uh, an incitement to creativity. Uh, and you had many people inventing um, important dishes. Oysters Rockefeller, which is the uh, creation of Jules Alciatore of uh, New Orleans, is one. And Vichyssoise, which is an adaptation yes. of a, a French dish by Louis Diat. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and uh, I mean, there are some people because because the third gift that you talk about is um, is this uh, culinary and being gastronomically evangelical. Now, some are better at that than others, right. and some do more of that than others. Would you say that these that these three, I guess you call them gifts, but defining um, parts of, a, of, a, of a, a life in cooking, you feel that that is still true today? Um, yes, I do. Um, it's interesting that in terms of the evangelical dimension, you have so many different new forms of media yes. that can present at least the visual dimension <laughs> of the culinary experience. And um, it's a shame that uh, we don't have smell-o-vision. Or, yes, yeah. And or that our small screen doesn't <laughs> have a... Uh, 
a lick function or something <laughs> like that. Maybe it's coming. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> Apple, are you listening? <laughs> well, here at Heritage Radio, we do try to 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 do our best at bringing those stories over the uh, over the right. internet to people. Uh, as I say, this is a very a, a very important book. I will say that it's a very important book, and I have enjoyed it tremendous. I haven't read it cover to cover; just got it this week. But I can guarantee you, I will, because once you start reading the story. It's hard to stop. These people's lives are extraordinarily rich. The challenges that they faced were sometimes heroic. I have a, a French chef who wanders from mining town to mining town in the West, convinced that people who are newly wealthy with mineral wealth deserve French cuisine. <laughs> so he winds up in the wilds of Arizona <laughs> Cooking, he finally yeah. expires. Well, so. you know. <laughs> Um, the book, again, I, I thank you, David, for sharing your stories. There are so many more, and um, your teaching um, about the history of, of American cooking. Again, the book is The Culinarians, Lives and Careers from the First Age of American Fine Dining by David Shields. Thank you, David. Thank you, Lynn. And thank you for listening. This has been A Taste of the Past, and I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.